is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 201. Today, I'm talking to Jeff Elkins all about how to master your dialogue. But first, uh, to last week's question, of which we're not doing this week because obviously I have been away and I'm recording this before I go away. So this week's question is, recommend me a podcast. So I have uh, been leaning towards audiobooks for probably six months, I would say. But I used to binge listen to dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasts and I kind of... I don't know, just lost my way with them. So I would love some podcast recommendations. I love, uh, what do I love? <laughs> All the things. Obviously books. I love writing podcasts. I love um, podcasts that talk about business, mindset, entrepreneurialism, entrepreneur, yeah, whatever words, um, marketing, all of that good stuff. So if you have anything that you can recommend me, please do. The book recommendation of the week this week is Existential Kink by Carolyn Elliott. Now, this book was wild. It is all about uh, accepting... Oh God, how do I even put it? Accepting your current situation as something that you have created, uh, which obviously we, you know, there's a lot of arguments for that. And that even if you are in a dire situation, that it's actually your subconscious that wanted it. And therefore, you know, our, our, we have to get comfortable with our deepest, darkest desires. And in doing that, we can um, come to terms with them and then manifest the good stuff. So like to give you an example, what I realized um, is that uh, the reason, well, not necessarily the reason, but one of the reasons I haven't necessarily hit the next financial bracket that I want, and therefore I keep hitting the same kind of financial levels, is because competition, one, thrives on pain, but also thrives on like the chase. And I suppose if I let myself reach that level, there's some kind of fear that I will lose motivation. And so you can see how, uh, uh, you know, admitting those things is horrible. Uh, but also there is some truth to it, right? Because now that I've confronted the fact that actually it's not that I like, um, poverty is too strong a word, but it's not that I like uh, not earning what I want. It's more that those uh, restrictions and the fact that I'm not there keep me chasing and keep me motivated. And therefore, like my unconscious is making me stay here so that I keep motivated and keep acting. It makes a lot of logical sense. Um, anyway, so this book blew my mind and I have a lot to kind of journal about and intellect on because I do want to hit my goals. Consciously, I want to hit my goals, but obviously subconsciously, I must have been like sabotaging myself in some way. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, it was, it was fucking wild. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so there's no personal update this week because, uh, of course, I have been, uh, chronologically, as you listen to this, I have been uh, away in Turkey and I should think that I have just arrived home as this goes live. So on to the Rebel of the Week. Rebel this week is Omar. Omar says... 
I have a talent for getting even. <laughs> I already like this one. I don't go out of my way to do so, but I often find myself the beneficiary of karmic retribution. While some people believe in turning the other cheek, if someone does me wrong, I will make sure they understand that wasn't a smart decision. That's just part of who I am and I can't deny it. My first girlfriend, let's call her Laura, broke my heart repeatedly in my 20s. She cheated on me constantly. And when we finally broke up, she was pregnant a couple of weeks later by a guy she told me not to worry about. Wow. After a couple of years, we got back together for a bit until she broke it off after I got mugged in Detroit while I was in art school. Don't live in the metro area of Detroit. One night after I moved back to West Michigan, I got a phone call from Laura and her best friend. They asked me to go get a coffee. I agreed. Being lonely and dealing with an epic uh, bout of self-doubt, I went for coffee. The entire time, Laura's best friend, Frances, was attentive and excited to see me. Uh, sorry, L Laura's best friend. Laura, on the other hand, wouldn't make eye contact and barely spoke to me. Uh, to where Francis called Laura out on it. What the hell is the matter with you? You asked him to come here, Francis said. Laura took a phone call and said, I've got to go. Can you give Francis a ride home? Wow. Sure, I guess, I said. So after that, Francis and I had fun that night after she profusely apologised for Laura's behaviour. One, one night turned into hanging out on the weekends to talking every day. <laughs> I can see where this is going. We became good friends and after Francis and her boyfriend broke up, we eventually started dating, all the while making sure to hide it from Laura. Till one night I'm driving home and I get a call from Francis. Hey babe, I greeted her. So it's true, you guys are together. Laura had stolen Francis's phone and she was crying. Now at this point, I could just lie, but I didn't owe Laura anything. Yes, I said, we're dating. Are there any more of my friends you want to date? She said, I don't know. You got any more cute friends? I said without skipping a beat. That's the meanest thing you've ever said to me, Laura said. No, I'm sure I've said worse. Have a good night, Laura. I hung up the phone. Moral of the story is, you cheat me, I fuck your best friend. Them's the rules. Now Francis and I are married <laughs> and have kids. Sometimes she feels bad about dating her friend's ex. I don't feel bad one bit. Oh, wow, what an ending. I love that you ended up married with kids. That is epic. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your stories. We are extraordinarily low again. So please, if you have been listening and you are yet to send me a story, or even if you have sent me a story, we really, 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 really need your stories. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons this week. Well, I'm assuming there's none because obviously we are still in the past. <laughs> but a huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid. But rather than me tell you all about it, I'm going to let my good friend Caitlin Duncan tell you all about why she uses Pro Writing Aid. For me, Pro Writing Aid is a constant companion for every writing project. I dedicate two whole steps of my editing process for Pro Writing Aid to ensure that my books are at the level that my readers expect. I love how this style and grammar editor brings my writing to a whole other level, and I'm constantly improving my craft every time I use it. I also enjoy using the browser extension so I can ensure that even if I'm down to the deadline with an author newsletter or a very important email from my publishing network, that my communication is clear and effective every single time. 
And I also love how you get lifetime access to this program, which gives me the confidence that I don't have to worry about another subscription service. And the lifetime updates truly make this a worthwhile investment in my career and life. If you are a mum and an author and you have been struggling to balance your time, Caitlin is a systems expert and a kind of author systems coach. So uh, she focuses specifically for mums who have published at least one book. But if you are interested then uh, and you have been struggling and you would like some help to gather up systems, she's got a new course out. So I will leave a link in the show notes uh, to that. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author the podcast. I'm super excited because we have one of my faves returning. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Elkins. Jeff is the author of 11 novels, the host of the Dialogue Doctor podcast, and a writing coach. Since launching the Dialogue Doctor in 2020, he's held more than 200 coaching sessions with authors helping them to write dialogue and create characters that will engage readers. Jeff is also the author of The Tome, aka The Dialogue Doctor, will see you now, how to write dialogue and characters readers will love. A primer on all the Dialogue Doctor community has learned about writing great dialogue. Hello and welcome. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for having me. No, I'm so, so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you back. You were requested to come back. So this was this was great timing. And also, you finally wrote the fucking tome. I'm so I finally wrote you. the fucking tome. I know. It's been <laughs> a two two years, a two and a half years. I finally get wrote the fucking tome. I know. And yeah. now you have to take the post-it off because you've done it. You smashed it. I did, actually. I yeah. did take the post-it off. <laughs> For those that don't know, you told me in November of 2020 to write the fucking tome, and I wrote it down on a post-it note, and I put it on my board over here, and about, about probably in May, I ripped it down, and I was like, finally wrote the fucking tome, yeah. This just brings, like, literally, I have, like, flutters of, like, joy hearing this, like, this is, I'm so proud of you. So you were on the show on episode 58, can't fucking believe that, because we're approaching 200 now, like, what It feels like so long ago. And I mean, you and I interact on like Slack and in different places. So it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But you you sent me that date. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's yeah, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> like, uh, well, so the funny thing is, like when I when I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, episode 58, that was like what, like last year. And then I was like, wait, November 2020 time yeah. is, is some kind of weird fucked up lie because it feels very so, like recent and very long ago. So anyway, yeah. we were still like COVID then. Like it was I know. still, uh, yeah, that's crazy. I know, I know. That's we crazy. were still in the in the in the heart of lockdowns because yeah. our old Bojo bloody um, prime minister was ready to cancel Christmas. That was the year yeah. he cancelled Christmas. Um, fucking bastard. Anyway, sorry, this is not a political show. Um, <laughs> I don't even care I didn't about know that. That's hysterical. You we know? have our own things going on over here in the states. Oh my god. So So basically everyone like he made a promise not to cancel Christmas. Like he literally publicly promised not to cancel Christmas. And then I said to Chloe, I was like, he's I'm telling you, he's going to cancel Christmas. (laughs) And then like four days before he canceled Christmas and the UK went into fucking uproar. And also nobody listened to him. Or at least that's what I seem to remember. But anyway, we're not going to get political. So um, normally I ask, about everyone's journey but if people want to they can go back and listen to episode 58 because i will link to that in the show notes so what have you been doing it's been like two three years nearly it's been three years i mean i did i've so the dialogue doctor launched 
like when I was on the show, I think I was only like three months in. So it's been two years, two and a half years of the dialogue doctor. So I'm, you know, around 150 podcast episodes now, which is great. Congratulations. Um, thanks. It's, it's, um, it's good. And it's, uh, and I've been working with clients. I, I've been doing five to seven coaching sessions a week since then. Um, so just a lot of, a lot of coaching, a massive amount of learning on my part, like coming to understand, I think I would say like November, 2020, I had ideas that were all gut. And I spent the last two years kind of refining those and figuring out like, okay, what actually works? with authors. Um, so that was good. I, I also wrote two, I wrote two novels. I wrote one novel that was a soul crushing fictionalized memoir that took me, <laughs> usually novels take me, I'm not a fast writer. They usually take me four, four to five months. This one took me a year. Um, it was a long. I, I actually think four to five months is quite quick, by the way. So oh, is I, it? Okay. Yeah. I, think I mean, people I think are writing books like a big. month. And people are like, I write a book a month. I write a book a week. You know, like yeah. I, I can't. I'm like, I, I, it takes me four to five months and then I have to take a month off. Um, but this one took me a, a full year and uh, it was good. I, You know, I, it's my favorite book. It's my, it, I had a failed launch, which is something we could talk about another time. Um, so I'm getting ready to relaunch it. Uh, but the, all of the, it was like all of the stars aligned to destroy the launch of that book, including like all of the uh, distributors, like m having major fuck ups on their part. Like oh, one, dis one distributor put proof all over the front of the book. So there are still stores now over a year later where, cause I've been emailing them and asking, they're like, oh, we don't know how to fix that. There's still stores now a year later where you go to find the book and it says proof all over the front copy. <laughs> all over the cover. So I was like, I never gave you guys a cover that's a proof. I don't know why you did that. But so that's like, it's just weird things like that. So I'm going to relaunch that one. And then we, I started writing a Vela with J.P. Reinflesh, um, the ninth, who is fantastic. We write a go, uh, a um, ghost. It's about, it's Ghostbusters meets the office. It's an oh, action comedy um, that has uh, a queer romance at the heart of it. Um, and it's great. It's JP's an amazing co-writer. And we just, we finished season one in March and put out uh, the season one as its own novel. Um, and so, and it's a beast. It was like 170,000 words by the time we put it out. Wow. It's a monster. And so we're uh, deep into season two now and like cranking on season two. And it's a lot of fun. It's just a stupid, you know. But yeah. And then I think the last thing I've done is uh, written the first, put out the tone. And so those those are the those are my those are my awards my <laughs> I love know, it. Awards? yeah my accolades yeah. yeah yeah I love it so what do you talk talk to me about the book what like where where did the book come from why did you do it what are you going to do with this series because there are there's there's this book and there's a second book on pre order and so yeah. tell me tell me about the, the, the yeah so this book um you know in working with writers. It, these problems would come up and we'd see this, I'd see the same problems over and over again. I came into the dialogue doctor with this idea of like, Hey, I understand these things about dialogue. Like let's write these things about that. But then when we started editing together, it was like, Oh, there's like, it's okay to have the philosophy, but we actually have to have some practical tools to like make the philosophy work. So what this book is, is really eight tools that we've developed um, 
I say we is like the dialogue doctor community, but that I've developed it in order to help writers improve their dialogue. So the goal of this book is that you'd be able to take it and look and read a chapter. And then at the end of each chapter, there's a challenge. There's a reading challenge and a writing challenge. You'd be able to do those challenges and immediately start seeing improvement in your dialogue. So, um, and they are, this book is kind of like, Hey, here are the eight basic concepts around understanding how to construct a scene that is dialogue centric. So seeing that like, or we, I've started calling it screenplay ready. So writing a scene that like could easily move from your book to a screenplay. Um, this is how like these, it, so it focuses on the like actual construction of dialogue on the page, how to write character voices, and then kind of a primer on how to start building a cast. And like how to conceptualize character growth within that cast. So the next book is going to dig deeper into that cast element and look at like, hey, let's talk in a deep way about what it means to build a cast, um, how we combine characters to create different emotions in a scene. So that's the book that's coming is really focused on like developing your cast for a series so that you have these deep interactions and are getting the emotional tones you want by putting characters and scenes together. Are you doing a challenge week to celebrate the launch? Because that sounds like that would be really great. I'm not. I should be. These are all these things that I don't, you know me. I don't think about <laughs> these things. I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not doing a challenge week. I am in October. There is going to be a prompt book come out that is just a book of, I'm still working on it, but it looks like it's going to be like 50 days of writing dialogue. So you can write a prompt every day. And, mm. and it'll take you systematically through the tools of the book. So that we'll start with just basic scene construction. And then like, I think it, one of the weeks I just wrote that I'm excited about is we'll write the same scene four different times and start it in a different way each time. Oh, and so you exciting. can learn kind of like what the different aspects of a scene do to your writing. Uh, there's a whole series in there of like, let's get your working with character voices there's seven prompts that are like okay keep the same lead character keep the same we i call it a vehicle character keep your same vehicle character and then let's change the voice that vehicle character is with so let's write a scene with a compassionate character now let's write a scene with a annoying character now let's write a scene with a overly intellectual character and like so you can see how like the static voice shifts depending on who's with them and the emotional tone of the scene shifts depending on who's with them. So you can start to kind of play with your dialogue. You know, I would say growing up, I played a lot of sports and I can like one of the things that really, I think for me comes out in writing is treating our writing like we're trying to learn an athletic um, event. So it's, that like understanding your fundamentals, practicing them over and over again so that you can then start to express them in your own way, right? Like, and that's what the point of this book is and what the point of the prompt book is that's coming out is like, hey, let's nail down your fundamentals. And once we have your fundamentals nailed down, like once you know how to shift a character voice to make a character voice sound like the personality you want it to sound like. Now you have the freedom to like play with that in all these cool ways. Just like, you know, when I was playing baseball and I, I finally learned the mechanics of hitting, it was like, okay, well now I know how to like put it in the outfield or put it in the infield. And now I can like pull it left or pull it right if I want to. And like, it just understanding those fundamentals opens up a whole world of options for you. So yeah. that's the, that's the goal of that 
of this book and that prompt book is to like, hey, let's get the fundamentals down. So then in future books in the series, we can start going deeper into other things like character growth or going deeper into like what happens when we just screw with the dialogue tags and like see where we start putting them and how we start manipulating them and yeah, all that kind of stuff. I love it. So before we dive into too much more detail, we should probably refresh everybody on what what your definition is of dialogue. Like, and you you talk about of, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> We're diving right into the detail. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's backtrack. Um, you talk about a couple of things in your book specifically, which is um, about dialogue um, exchanges and the difference between dialogue and exposition. So I don't know if you want to kind of include those in your yeah, in your yeah. So. I think dialogue is one of those weird words that like everybody uses, but very few people ever fully define. So um, dialogue is the interaction between characters. So if you've got characters interacting on a page, that's dialogue. And the reason dialogue is important is because dialogue is the skeleton of your scene. So it's pulling the reader into a moment of your journey. It's contrast that with exposition, which is, uh, things that take the reader out to reflect right like so exposition includes like uh descriptions of the room right like when you're describing a room you're taking a step back from being in the room and you're observing what's happening right like you're almost freezing in time to get of the scene to get a moment in this space uh summaries of past action Right. Like, hey, this is what happened over the last three years for this character. You're pausing the the play or the the film of the story going on in the reader's imagination to like fill them in on gaps. Right. Like so these kind of expositional uh, paragraphs give us this time to reflect. Right. So the difference between the, the, the key component in understanding why dialogue is important is understanding that, that this moment of character interaction pulls that reader down into the tangible life of the scene and the tangible life of the story whereas exposition uh allows the leader to have this allows the reader to have this moment of reflection this moment so, of like stepping back so is sex dialogue yes so are fight scenes Anyth- yeah, anytime okay. characters are interacting with each other that's dialogue okay right? like because so often we think of dialogue as like oh people are talking but that's not dialogue. Like we dialogue with each other all the time and don't speak, right? Like body language is dialogue, body, like exchanging um, that dance, like conversation of sex is dialogue. It's characters passing back and forth expectations, ideas, and emotions to one another. And so in sex is one of the like most vulnerable places that we pass back that expectations and emotions to one another. It's that character interaction. What about when a character is interacting with the world or inanimate objects? Yeah. So it's this funny thing we do. And it's a question we get all the time of like, well, how do my character interact with anybody when they're alone? And so like, because, you know, especially I was just working with an author who's writing a uh, like post-apoc novel. It's like most of the time my character's like walking through the woods by themselves Give them a dog. Yeah, give them something like, (laughs) or, you know, a a sword or a bat, right? Like something that they can like talk to and interact with. um, Wilson. 
You yeah, need a Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, right. Like you need the you need the volleyball with the face painted on it. But you need something. And the reason you need something is that if you're just hitting the reader with paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of exposition, the reader will get exhausted. So energy is created by the reader living in the scene, by the exchange, by characters exchanging, going back and forth with each other. We generate this energy that the reader like wants to be a part of and wants to live in reflectional paragraphs are amazing because they slow that energy down and you do need breaks in that energy. You can't just have like all energy building. It gets exhausting for the reader. Like they start to kind of pause in the dialogue and be like, what is happening? So you do need those, like the combination of the two, but if you're just pounding them with paragraph over paragraph over paragraph of reflection, they start to feel heavy and they start to like, start to skim and they start to wonder like when are we getting to <laughs> action is what they'll say when are we getting to action even if you're having like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of fight scenes if it's not structured as characters interacting so what i what i told we looked the client actually looked through um the 15 top selling post-apoc novels and we found scenes where they're alone and it's like look you can see what they're doing they're spacing it out with dialogue spacing where the character's interacting with the world as if he's in conversation with it and it creates that like energy that he would be creating with two characters together does that make sense like it's that yeah 100 percent. i started i just looked up at my shelf because i started reading a deadly Edu education by naomi novik who's like this best-selling author um, and I and I actually put it down. Uh, so I got 12 pages in and the first like the first six pages were like massively underlined. It was super voicey character, mm -hmm. super quirky. Um, but by the time we got to page 12, there hadn't been any dialogue and um, not just no dialogue or, or like maybe there was like one or two lines. But mm -hmm. what had happened was it was so much of the character like narrating that yeah. um, there were like these huge blocks of just whole page text. Oh. And um, I didn't after the book, like, because I was just like, I can't, this is too slow for me. Um, yeah. And and it's not that I, I will go back and read it, but I've actually decided to listen to it in audio because it will up the tempo for yeah. me. Um, but it was really interesting for me that um, it's not even necessarily a, about dialogue but it was definitely about like that page state like if there weren't even any short sentences it was just these long pages of prose and i was like i can't do this like i'm not yeah, it this. is there's a weird thing too with modern readers like one of the reasons dialogue builds energy is because it keeps us turning pages faster and there is a weird thing in our brains that's like i want to feel like i'm making progress in a book Mm -hmm. And so when you have paragraph after paragraph, like dense paragraph after dense paragraph, that's one of the reasons exposition feels slow because you're not going anywhere. So you're just like, oh, I've been on page five for like five minutes. I'm starting to look around. I'm like, what's going on? It's part of just an attention thing. So I coach writers. I'm like, hey, no more than eight paragraphs. If you have eight paragraphs of exposition. If they've got eight paragraphs, I'm DNFing. Yeah, you got to pull out. Like, there's not a, there's not, you know. So, I don't think, I, like, I'm going to be extreme on this. I don't think you should have more than one page of dense prose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Personally, I think even one page is too much. I yeah. think, I don't think you should have, but I, yeah. I don't, per look, everyone's going to be like, you fucking, like, and I'm yeah, going to get all, hate all the, his, all the historical <laughs> fiction authors just died inside. Oh, my God. They're all like, so oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. 
happens all the time. Actually, I say this, like all my uh, patrons who love historical fiction have been bo- like breaking me down over the last <laughs> three years. But um, I, I have read several historical fiction novels that I do like, but the reason that, that I like them is because they were pacier. But yeah, exactly. Like I just don't look, I'm 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 top ten activator. I'm never gonna like anything that's long and slow. <laughs> um anyway, let's let's move on before I get hate mail. Um <laughs> This is my goal for today. How much hate mail can I get Sasha on her own podcast? Oh, cheers. Thanks for the thanks for the support. <laughs> Let's talk about dialogue in scenes. What are the four parts of a scene and what tips do you have for making dialogue shine in them? Yeah, so it's uh, like scenes are, before we, before I give you the four parts of a scene, I want to take a moment back and and like talk about why understanding what a scene is, is important, if that's okay. So part of writing dialogue is changing your mindset as to what you're conceptualizing when you write something. So I, I talk to writers about like, hey, think of this moment in your text as a stage play in that's happening in the reader's imagination. So the reader is visualizing in their mind what's going on and they're seeing your characters interact. And like we could say, like, think of it like a movie, but there's a there's a disconnect between a movie and what we're writing and that in a in a movie, it's easier you have like a point of view from a camera so it's easier to say a stage play because that way there's just somebody sitting in an audience in kind of a static position watching what's going on so thinking about it that way means that like hey we need to conceptualize these scenes as conversations between these characters right like so which is all a screenplay is is just a series of conversations between characters but if we think of a scene as like one moment in this stage play then and at the end of the scene the lights are going to go out and things are going to change and the lights are going to come back on it kind of gives us like parameters for what we're writing in a scene and part of the like i think a lot of us think of like oh a scene is a chapter a scene is not a chapter a chapter is an artificial construction you put around scenes to give the reader mental breaks at strategic moments. So scenes might go longer than a chapter, right? You might have multiple scenes in a chapter. So now that we like get what a scene is, we can talk about like, okay, what needs to be on the stage of that reader's imagination? And you need the characters. We need to know who's there, right? We need to know the scenery. We need to have some conception of where we are. We need to know the conflict. We need to know, like, why is this scene happening? What is the reason that this scene is driving? And then we need to understand how am I supposed to feel about what's happening? What's the emotional tone of this scene? Having all four of those components and understanding those four components is important because once you have them, you can start to screw with the reader. And you can start to like mess with what you withhold and what you give them. So, for example, if you withhold space and time, if you withhold like the grounding of the scenery so that when the lights in the room come on, it's just characters standing on an empty stage. Right. What you do is give us this um, moment of intense focus on the characters and on this individual person. But uh, you remove from us this idea that, like, we know where we are, and it gives us a little uncertainty about what's going to happen, right? Like, so it gives the reader this feeling of, like, I'm not sure 
where I am, I'm having this intense focus on this one person. So all of my energy is devoted to understanding this character. Um, this is how Hemingway starts uh, The Sun Also Rises. He just, he gives you three paragraphs describing a single character with no inclination of where you are in space and time. And it centers you in on that character. And f as you read the book, you, the character isn't even the main character. But as you read the book, you're a little obsessed with Robert and how, where Robert is and what Robert's doing. Because at the start of the book, he devoted all of this energy to just making you examine this character. Whereas like, on the other hand, if you're in a, a, a world where the like world in itself is super important. You're going to spend more time at this opening of a scene, digging into the scenery because now where we are is probably more important than who's going to enter the scenery. Same with like the conflict or like the emotional tone is a great one. Like uh, Toni Morrison starts beloved talking about the idea of dread and she's just describing an emotional tone. And then after she describes the emotional tone, she gives you a paragraph of the scenery and then you meet Sethi in Denver and then you start to understand Paul D shows up and you start to get the conflict. So like understanding she's understanding the components of the scene to like really set that emotional tone in a really firm way so that what should feel like a homecoming where Paul D is coming home to home as in like hasn't seen Sethi in decades and should feel like a reunion has this overarching sense of dread because Toni Morrison spent a page talking about the feeling of dread and like giving you this emotional feeling. So it sets this novel that is a ghost story horror novel that like from the very beginning, this like weird feeling of, well, something's going to happen here. So getting those four components down and understanding like how to to withhold them from the reader, what withholding them does to the reader, what like giving the reader, like overemphasizing one does to the reader, uh, again, just gives you more tools to screw the reader around with, like to mess with the reader and like what you want the reader doing. So I um, have had to stop drafting uh, my book three uh, this week. And I have spent some time inputting uh, competition movies because I'm writing a book set in a competition. And uh, one of the things that I realized is that I had removed a lot of the characters from the first two books. And I don't really know why I did that. Other than the <laughs> fact that like, <clears throat> actually, I do. I, I, I actually think the mistake I made was using GPT to outline. And so I shortcut huh. my intellection process. Yeah. And actually, I haven't gotten the depth in the outline that I need. So I've had to input and now this afternoon I'm going to re-outline starting completely mm. fresh but the point is what I did because what I like is bigger cast scenes mm -hmm. um and what I was left with was a lot of one-on-one -on -one scenes which are important in romance and you do need them but that was all I had and so I didn't have the the flow that I personally like between intense one-on-one -on -one versus like fun well, that's what mine are anyway. They're like the more fun, bantery, like group scenes. Yeah. So talk to me about the differences between one-on-one -on -one scenes and larger casts. And like, how can we create 
good dialogue that isn't confusing in bigger cast scenes. That's so interesting. So let me ask real quick, like when you're writing, you said you're looking for fun. Is this like uh romance comedy? Like, would you consider this like a rom-com or like no, what is, what's it, the it's, tone? It's more the found family aspect. So like okay. the, the group is found family and they're all yeah. like feisty women. Like they're all, they all kind of, like their love language is banter and like ripping the shit out of each other and gotcha. you know like that's gotcha. just their kind of love language so like and that and that, you know there were lots of scenes where like they'd all or not lots but like there were these important moments of them all coming together in the other books and like where they'd plan the mission or where they'd eat pizza and like take the mick because someone still yeah. hasn't kissed someone or you know whatever yeah. and that's what was missing and um yeah, I, I only just realized it this week. And then it was reiterated by all the input I did from the competition movies to be like, oh, Interesting. like I still need the family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's so that's really fascinating. Have you seen this is a total side. Have you seen the movie Pariah no. by D. Reese? No. Okay. All right. It's a found family movie. It's a mm. um, kind of memoir. Uh, fictionalized memoir about a young woman growing up in New York, coming to terms with her uh, queer sexuality and search in search of family. But it has all these great she's there is a queer found family in the movie and it has those scenes that you're describing where there there's a lot of um, very butch women playing poker. And the lead character keeps showing up to these poker games, these like repeated scenes of the found family. And they really, they create a really strong heart in the movie. It's a nice, yeah. Anyway, Um, when you were talking about your book, it it reminded me of that, that like, you know, uh, queer community kind of coming, finding each other in a, in the book, in a hostile environment, like finding each other in a hostile environment. So anyway, um, yeah. So one-on-one scenes are fantastic for, um, uh, intimacy, vulnerability, uh, and like high tension. So like, because you have two characters that are going to share, you get the, like, you can do the, like, you know, Gilmore girls, West wing, rapid fire dialogue. If you want to, if those, if that matches up with your character voices, that just creates a ton of energy and a lot of movement. Um, and so, but they do, the more those two characters converse, the more we're going to hone in on those two characters and the more, the more intimate slash vulnerable that conversation needs to become. Uh, and the more intense it'll get, right? Like one-on-one conversations bend toward intensity because you are digging deeper into these characters. So if you're writing a thriller, you want a lot of one-on-one conversations. If you're writing a, um, a, a detective mystery novel, you know, having the detective with a sidekick talking through things is, is a great point for that. Um, moments of reflection and intense action movies are really good for that one-on-one too, like intense action scenes. Uh, but if you're looking for that, like, you know, co- that energy building, like fun, engaging, um, we're having a great time together. That's when you need that big cast. And what happens in that big cast is by adding those other characters, we get a deeper texture of the scene and it creates more opportunities for comedic moments. It creates more opportunities for moments of invitation where we're like inviting the reader to be a part of this community of people, which is one of the reasons that like all comedies on television have gone to big cast comedies. Right. Like, and you can see that if you look at the evolution of comedy 
in like our in what we watch now and what we consume in media it's moved from like oh this is kind of two people with like some friends to like no we have like seven cast members and they're we're following all of them we're breaking them up into different groups what's also nice about having that big cast is that separation into different groups so like like a guardians of the galaxy type cast movie and i speak in movies because that's what most of us like we all consume those i, I do the same because yeah. it's they're, they're more um it's a common language yes yeah. exactly yeah. yeah but it happens in books too just to be clear but like the guardians of the galaxy type cast like you can start breaking those characters off together to get different feelings of different tones so writing one of those big cast scenes what i call big cast like three to six characters real masters of it can get eight characters in there but anything over eight and you're like really pushing it it's really it's super important that you know who's talking so you got to be really creative with how you're using your dialogue tags and your body language to not make it feel repetitive um but to still not the art of it is you don't want it to feel repetitive but you also don't want those to be intrusive so that they slow too much stuff down so knowing like where you put a dialogue tag and how it changes the reader's imagination of that vocalization. So like dialogue tags at the beginning, make the vocalization feel a little more reflective dialogue tags in the middle, create like mental breaths during the vocalization dialogue tags at the end, get ignored because we're just reading them to get to the next vocalization, right? Like understanding like how to pace those based on the character personality will help a lot, right? Like, so if you have a reflective character, get that body language and dialogue tag up front. If you have a character that's like a little more long-winded and talks more in that big cast conversation, make sure you're getting that dialogue tag in the middle of their sentences so that it contrasts with the reflective character and contrasts with the um, character that speaks quickly. Like a bubbly character, you always want to have that dialogue tag at the end because they're like blowing up with words. So you want those words to flow out. So part of the mastery of writing that big cast scene is understanding your character voices so that you can pace that dialogue tag and that body language in ways that keep it going. I think the other like thing readers, I, uh, writers get confused with is that every character has to be seen in the scene. Readers hate it when they lose a character and then all of a sudden that character reappears and they're like, Oh, fuck charlie was here the whole time right like so you gotta you gotta remember that like you gotta it's not a movie they can't just take in the whole scene and understand that like brad pitt is standing in the background you have to tell them that brad pitt is standing in the background and then every once in a while and i say like every segment to two segments check back in with the silent members of the party tell us what they're doing how they're responding to something give them like a laugh or an eyebrow raise or something that reminds us like hey they're in this scene because what readers hate is i've read two pages of this scene and then all of a sudden you remind me that this character's standing in the back and the worst is when that character's presence actually changed what was happening how the scene is interpreted right like because that character had something to do with the dialogue even though they weren't engaged in it so that balance of like, I got to keep all my characters talking. I got to keep the conversation moving. I have to make sure that like the tags in the body language are artfully done. So it doesn't feel repetitive. And I want to keep all the characters engaged, but I don't have to keep all the characters talking, right? Like we don't need to get into a systematic pattern of like character, a character, B character, C character, a character, B character, C. Like you can play around with who's talking when and how they're playing with each other. That's part of what we love about, these big cast scenes is seeing these, all of these characters pitch in 
but don't lose characters at the same time. So that big cast is really a balance between the energy you get from a one-on-one and the intensity you get from a one-on-one while keeping all of those other characters engaged. Um, this, this, one of the tricks that I use when I'm writing a big cast scene is at the front of the scene, I introduce everybody who's there. And then I think about my groupings. So if I have six characters in the scene and like three of them are snarky and like one of them is shy and then, you know, two of them are fairly pleasant, right? I'm going to try to take segments of the conversation. So segments is like a component of the scene based on the topic they're discussing or the emotional tone. And in that segment, I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to focus on these four. And the other two are going to kind of sit in the background. And then the next segment, I'm going to drop one out and pull another one in. Right. And then the next segment, and that keeps it fresh. It keeps it moving, keeps all the characters engaged. Right. Like, and I'll do it based on time. Like, okay, who cares about this topic that we're about to talk about? Who's going to get engaged here? If the shy character is seriously just sitting out all the time, I'm going to have one of the snarky characters intentionally pull the shy character into a conversation. So if I want the segment to get intense, like if the conversation is building to a fight, I'm going to have a segment before the fight where it's just two characters going at each other, right? So that I can simulate that one-on-one intensity in that even though I'm in a group, I can get two characters having to wrap it back and forth for just a small segment to get that like intensity building so that the fight can explode at the end. Okay. I, I love this. And like, you're making me think loads. I'm going to have to come back and re-listen to this, I think. Um Let's get really That's practical. like the biggest compliment ever. Yeah, like, yeah. no, I mean, it, it, yeah, I, it's funny because as you were talking, I'm like, I think I do some of this. Like, I think this is, I don't think I do it consciously, but I, you know, sometimes doing things consciously makes, makes it, makes the thing that you're doing better because you can really hone it and tweak it. Whereas, whereas when you're doing it unconsciously, um, it's almost like it happens by, yeah so it's yeah and yeah what i tell writers is like hey keep doing what you're doing unconsciously like don't don't screw with what's motivating your writing because we don't want to make it harder right like writing is already hard enough but what you're doing unconsciously understanding the foundations and the philosophy will allow you to recognize what you're doing unconsciously and then get strategic about it yeah that's that but in for me to do that I have to take what is unconscious and make myself like consciously competent at it in order to be able to explain how I do it. That is then how I can then automate it again, but more strategically. And I don't know, not everybody does it that way, but that like, that's why I started writing nonfiction books because, you know, that was, that was a process. So, so yeah. Okay. Let's, because I can't believe that it's, we've already been talking for like 45 minutes. So really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, or, or almost anyway. Let's get really practical. And this is not selfish in any way whatsoever. I said if I would ever do that. (laughs) Let's talk about how we can develop character voices. I'm just going to like totally randomly pick like two completely random. Two voices that have nothing to do with anything. Nothing to do with anything else. Okay, we're just pulling them out of a hat. Just, just, it's not, I did not pre-plan this. This is not one I made earlier. Right. Let's talk about a character who is like kind of attractive each, like knows they're attractive. So has that like 
arrogance to them, but um, like, like, what's the word when it's um, like deserved arrogance almost. Okay. Um, highly, highly intelligent character. Um, and and very academic and sort of has she has women falling all over her oh what what this is a lesbian woman oh no it's definitely not oh, pre-planned. so weird so weird it's okay so weird. It's okay. Yeah. okay so we've got that character you versus... can't control what comes out of the hat i know it, right what it's... comes out of the hat is totally it's totally random, random. generator gods yeah. what can i say um and then how would that differ like how would i go about creating her voice versus creating oh look it's another lesbian um who this one is <laughs> This one is kind of chaotic, very intense, also also intelligent because like that these two are like the academic kind of rivals against each other. This one isn't academic in the way of the other one who's traditionally academic. And um, this one's more like kind of unhinged, slightly, you know, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, but is, in is, a lovable way. Is the unhinged and this uh, this isn't a negative characteristic. Is the unhinged menacing in that like the unhinged recognizes its unhingedness and in and kind of enjoys it a little bit. Yeah. Or is the unhinged unhinged and like nutty professor? Like I don't no. realize I'm crazy. Okay. No, that I basically only really like writing morally gray people. Yeah, no, it's great. Are these um but this is random. Are these obviously um, oh, well, obviously, <laughs> obviously random. So are these two characters are they love interests of each other? Are they gonna yes. pull together? Okay. So the reason I ask that is because if you want them pulling together, they need to see something in one another that is attractive. And often what we see in people that attracts us is either something we're missing or something we have in common. So like when opposites attract, it's because we're finding something in the other person that we wish we had. When And almost always when opposites attract, there's also something they share in common. So it's that kind they, of like... So they share... Um the so it's kind of like their emotional wounds so one has the unhinged one has parents who have set expectations that are just so unbelievably unachievable and so has never felt worthy of like parental love and is striving for that and then the and then the academic character has kind of come from poverty and has never never felt worthy of like the you know because they've got legacy in oh, this random in this random story no, there's so like, that's imp- yeah so, it's important so, it's a learned it's a learned charmingness it's yes learned, and so yeah. so this character is now like a self-made millionaire yeah but they don't feel worthy gotcha. of that self-made so yeah. so between them they're going to help each other in this random story that has nothing to do with anything they're going to yeah. help each other kind of learn how to value themselves like gotcha. yeah i love your random bag by the way it pulls out so many details it's fantastic it's just, it's just amazing <laughs> so um the reason i ask that is because when we're building a character voice we always want to start with the background and move to the personality and the expression of the voice right like because we can use adjectives but how those when i talk to an author like what one person may say about like oh this character is you know anxious well one person means by anxious maybe completely different than what somebody means by anxious so it it is really when we talk about the expression of the personality through a character voice it's important for us to take a second and like define our words like what do we mean by this word so that like um learned charming talented mr ripley kind of like i'm super intelligent but um lady gentleman is how lady gentleman yeah Yeah. perfect description so we want her vocab um 
she needs to be able to access it. So we're going to break the character voice down into five things. The vocabulary they use, the topics they discuss, the body language and how they take up space in the world, uh, the construction of their utterances or like what their sentences look like when they have a turn to speak. And then in a big cast conversation, how often they talk. So what makes somebody feel charming and what makes somebody connect to others in that way is that charming people care more about the other people around them than they care about themselves. Now, that can be a natural charmingness in that, like, you're just naturally interested in other people, or it could be a learned charmingness. What you're talking about is a learned charmingness in that, like, I know that when I'm in a conversation with somebody, asking them questions gives me more control over the conversation than giving answers, right? Like, so it's oh, a way to manipulate them. so control. helpful. Yeah, so we want her vocab. She needs to be able to access uh, that intellectual level vocab. So if she's with a group of academics, she's able to keep up with their conversation in a in a genuine way. She's genuinely intelligent, right? Like in a like will hunting um, uh, yeah. way where she can like turn it on if she needs to. Now, will hunting's going to look more like your uh, unhinged character than this one, but has that ability to like go talk to the construction workers from Boston and talk to the academics and feel at home with both. What that kind of character is doing is mirroring the vocabulary of the people they're around. So when they're with people that have more of a blue collar education, they use more blue collar words. When they're with somebody that has more intellectual, they use more intellectual words. One way to bring the reader into that is to show this character in both worlds, right? Like, okay. So this is really helpful because one of the things that I was struggling with is that like when she in this random story when she um is describing things or or like you know when she's narrating and with her interactions her thought processes do use longer words they do she chooses a more premier league word as a description rather than a shorter word for example but what I was struggling with is that when she was in more like intimate scenes that like I don't I, I don't can't do that with that language, yeah. and so, yeah. and then I was like, oh, like maybe she's not embodying who she is because I'm changing all the words in this, you know, and so that that kind of was causing some friction for me because I'm like, well, she's filthy, <laughs> like, but yeah, she's yeah. just not filthy in the, in those other types of scenes. Like, how do yeah. I merge that? You want her mirroring who she's with, yeah. And so, yes. a common trait of this kind of character is that they don't actually know who they are is that they're lost uh. in who they are. They're so good at marrying who they're with. It's hard for them to get a grasp on who they are. These kind of characters often feel very alone. Even though they're super attractive, everyone knows them, everyone everyone loves them, they feel isolated. So, and I got to say, like, my daughter is this way. She is like, we tease her that she's the Zac Efron of her high school. Everybody knows who she is. She's the basketball star of her school. She is five foot 11 and drop dead gorgeous and incredibly charming but when she's home alone what she's crying about is i don't have any friends yeah right? like, oh no, this character struggles to find noise, themselves and like struggles to find their community even though everyone knows them and loves them so they're going to mirror people in their vocab her topics are going to be about what uh, what about other people she's going to turn the conversation to talk about what other people want to talk about right because other people love it when we focus on them. So she's going to, her body language, she's going to make eye contact because eye contact makes you feel important. Yeah. She's also going to touch people, right? Because touching people brings connection. 
So, but she's going to naturally know who she can touch and who she can't. That's something charming people have. They have this instinct of like, this person wants a hug. This person does not want a hug, right? Like, so she's just going to know in conversations that when things get intimate, she's going to reach out and touch your arm. She's going to reach out and touch your shoulder, right? Like, because it, she's drawing a connection with you and she's learned over time that like, hey, in the middle of this conversation, if I touch their arm, they respond to that. So she's, you know, mirroring what people want. Um, it's going to make everybody love her. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is like you, some of these things I already had, but like, I didn't really know they just happened naturally. And now you're yeah. giving it the context that it needs, but also deepening that. Yeah. So like and it's, the, yeah. the eye contact thing is something that definitely I already had, but I didn't have the touch. And like, when I think about it, there's somebody in my life who is like this and I'm like, Oh, they do that. Like mm-hmm. they're super tactile. So yeah. like that makes a lot of sense to me. I love that. She's, she's going to come up behind hurting people and put her arm around mm. and it's going to make them feel very intimate and special. She literally does that in book yeah. two. And I didn't nice. even, yep. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I wish people could see the video. I literally jaw dropped, but like, that's what <laughs> she does in book two. That's incredible. I didn't even. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like creating a circle of warmth around her. People want to be with her because when they're with her, they feel seen and heard. And that's charming characters. That's super important. Whether you're weaponizing that charming, like a character like Homelander in the show, The Boys, where he is charming in public, but he weaponizes it in this, like, I'm going to do use it to get what I want. Or whether they're genuinely like, I like to be liked by people. So they're mm-hmm. charming in that way. Um you see, that's why politicians are always shaking hands, right? Like the weird thing is like politicians like go down a line and shake everybody's hand. They're making tactile connection with people because it creates a sense of warmth. So it's that like, yeah. Um, her construction of utterances are going to be interesting. She's going to ask a lot more questions than other characters. And they're not questions for um, like her necessarily to gain knowledge a lot of times she might even ask questions about things she already knows they're questions to get other people to talk and to show interest in what other people are doing so you want a lot of questions with her you want her to she has opinions and she's comfortable with her opinions in her topics um but she holds off sharing them and she's going to use going back to her vocabulary she's going to use a lot of we language She uses a lot of we language to incorporate everybody into stuff. Even people who don't deserve to be incorporated, she's going to use we language, right? Like um, when you get into that big cast conversation, that like found community type conversation where they're all there, she's going to lead conversation. She's going to start it. And in the conversation, she's the one pulling quiet people in, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're in an academic setting, like if you're around a, a, a table and there's like, you know, four academics there and her. And then one of the academics is like, there's three men and a woman and the woman isn't talking much because, you know, she feels uh, she's been made to feel over time out of place in this male dominated space. This woman is the one who has no problem participating in the conversation and then says, Hey, Sharon, how do you feel about this? Right. Like, and pulls those outsiders into the conversation. It's the way that she gathers community around herself. So pulling people into these big cast conversations is going to be a big part of her thing because she wants everybody to feel warm and accepted. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So your unhinged character has the same skill set. 
because they're right. coming from similar places. But your unhinged character has gone the opposite direction with it. Yeah. So rather than trying to make everybody feel comfortable, what makes a character feel unhinged is they keep everybody off balance all the time. Yes, so, and that's what I want her to do to Remy, but I haven't quite nailed that yet. Yeah, re- the the charming character. I love that your bag also has has random names in it. That's great. Cool. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Re- Remy is going to have that. Um, Remy's going to be pissed. Who's the unhinged character? Can you Bella. pull a random? Bella. Remy's going to be pissed at Bella at first. Yes. Because For Bella. For she- reasons as well from their past. Yeah, but part of it is just the way Bella behaves. Yeah. Because Remy has has taught herself, I've overcome what I'm doing, who I am, by being the most charming person in the room. Bella has taught herself, I've overcome who I am by being an asshole. But also, she's entitled because she's a legacy magician, so she was born into money. Yeah. And so there's this, like, I have the freedom to screw with people. Yeah. Whereas Remy has the ability to screw with people and chooses not to. Yeah. So there's that like contrast in privilege and freedom and that contrast in like how they're choosing to operate in the world. So you want Bella intentionally setting people uneasy. And as you think about the five things that she uses, her vocab, her topics, her body language, the construction of her utterances and her um, and uh, like pacing of her of her utterances in a big cast conversation and exchanges. you want to think about like what makes everybody around her un- nervous. So the best character voice for this that I've ever seen on the screen is Heath Ledger's the Joker. He keeps everybody on edge all the time and he purely does it with his character voice. It mm-hmm. is just with how he talks. So <clears throat> words, she's going to use words. If she's in a blue collar place, she's going to use words that they don't understand just to be kind of an a-hole about it. She's going to drop words in that they don't like. She's going to put words in. Um, If she's in an intellectual conversation with a bunch of academics, she's going to drop a curse word that they feel is below them because that sets them all uneasy. It makes them raise their eyebrows and question her presence there. Does that make sense? So she's also shifting her vocabulary just like Remy, but she's weaponizing the knowledge she has of how to mirror people. And she's being an anti-mirror. She's doing things that they don't like. Now, you don't want to do it all the time, right? You just want to slide in a word. So when she's with academics, she sounds like an academic until she looks at them and says like, I mean, come on, let's just be honest. Your paper's completely fucked up, right? (laughs) And that last phrase is what makes them all go, oh, that's the reaction she's looking for all the time. Is the, oh, so she's yeah. going to drop the words that like make people go. Oh, and that's where you get that Will Hunting character who's like in the bar behaving like a Boston Southie. And then all of a sudden starts rattling off all of these things he's read in the library about like how these characters are. He's operating as the Boston Southie. He could have started as the intellectual, but he's decided to operate as the Boston Southie knowing he could pull all this intellectual material to make everybody around him go, and that's what he wants all the time. So she's also going to shift topics. Suddenly we like it as people, just as humans, when topics come to conclusion, we like closure. We like wrapping things up. She's going to intentionally withhold closure from people. She's going to pull closure out. She's going to, um, change topics 
and she's going to pick when she changes topics, she will likely change to something that makes her conversation partner uncomfortable. So <laughs> it's that like, we're talking about your paper about mosquitoes and the life cycle of mosquitoes. And then all of a sudden she's going to change it to like, do you like it when people bite you? Right. And this is what, if you seriously, if you want a great example of this, go watch that Batman movie with Heath Ledger. He does it all the time. He'll be in the middle of, he'll have like three sentences about what a nice party this is. And then he'll look at somebody and go, I ever tell you how I got these scars? Oh, that is, this, oh like, my God. That's my lip. favorite thing about him is that the story changes. I still want to steal that tool and have a character whose story, like backstory always changes. I'm trying to weave that into yeah. the new series because there just isn't space to do it in this one. But that is like, that is definitely something that, like that I have always thought is one of the most magnificent tools I've ever seen put into story. Yeah. And you want to know because why it, it builds myth. It builds myth, and one of the reasons it works so well is because the writing is so great. He changes the backstory to maximize the uncomfort of the person he's talking to. So if he's talking to somebody that looks like they've come from a stable family, the reason that he got those scars is because his family wasn't stable. Yeah. Right? Like it's that he's he's screwing with everybody. And that's what that unhinged character does. They take joy in the uncomfort of others because they find power there. And the same reason that Remy is charming everybody because she finds power there, Bella keeps everybody off center, and that's where she finds her power. Right. Yeah. yeah. Her body language is going to be abrupt and changing so she's going to be still and then all of a sudden explode with movement okay. or she's going to be moving and they get very still you want her voice changing in that way too when we talk about the construction of her utterances short sentence short sentence short sentence long spiel right long spiel long spiel long spiel short sentence right like messing with how she talks to people to keep them off center all the time now, in yeah. a big cast conversation, she is likely to sit back and listen until it comes time for her to dominate. And then she's taking over. But oh it's one God. of those, like, she's yeah. going to wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just sounds like you're talking about Bella. Like, this is exactly, like, it's so weird that you can just be talking about this person who is in my brain. <laughs> from this random story that I that I picked out of a random <laughs> out of a random generator bag. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of what like we're doing when we construct character voices is we're simulating reality. Mm. Right. Like so this is how people function in the world. And what we're doing is we're just defining it so that we can get what's in our imagination into the reader's imagination. And we're using common things. Cause like when you walk into a group of people, this is what your brain is unconsciously watching. You're listening to the words they use. You're listening to the topics they choose to talk about. You are watching their body language unconsciously. You're paying attention to how often they talk and how they construct their sentences. So if you're in a room, if you're in a group of people and somebody's talking like super long sentences, and they're using big heady words and their body language is, you know, they're adjusting their glasses and they're talking with their hands in tight and controlled spaces and they're not actually making eye contact. They're looking around everywhere. You're like, this person's a pretentious ass because they're not actually here with us in the conversation. They're lecturing us about what's going on, right? Like, so it's that 
but you know that inherently your brain is doing all of this work whenever you get into a conversation. So what we're doing is taking the work our brain naturally does and applying it to our writing so that we can activate our reader's brain so that you don't have to tell your reader Bella's unhinged. They'll see one conversation and they'll be like, oh shit, Bella's unhinged. Right? Like, <laughs> is that like, and the first time they'll see it is in a group conversation when Bella is sitting in the back having inappropriate body language. She's like leaning in a way she shouldn't be leaning and she's got her legs wide open as this like power stance. And Remy's like having a great time trying to keep everybody engaged. And then suddenly Bella enters the conversation like a freight train. Yes, and your that's reader, exactly like she is a freight train your reader will be like oh shit bella's unhinged yeah and remy will be pissed because she's created this like wonderful space that she's in control of oh you have just made me realize why something isn't working okay okay that is helpful because she isn't a victim and like basically something that was happening to her in a subplot was turning her into this victim and actually i think she'd be angry about the situation not she wouldn't victimize herself in that situation she would like it, yeah i made her too passive for how she is so that's really yeah neither helpful. of these characters are going to be victims no no not now, at all can we talk about vulnerability and intimacy between these two characters for a second yeah because you've written two characters that in both have book. in this random book that both have um masks on mm-hmm. Remy's mask is Karen is can is this charming I need to engage other people. Um Bella's mask is this like I need to keep everybody off kilter. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they will become less of that. It's not that they'll stop doing that in vulnerability. It's just that the extreme to which they project it will lower. So in like a sexual situation, because I know you write sapphic romance. So in the sexual situation where they're coming together as partners, their initial coming together would be a extreme projection of their mask. So sexually Remy's going to try to make Bella super happy and sexually Bella is going to try to keep Remy off kilter. Oh my God. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work because Remy's never going to be able to make Bella happy because Bella is constantly trying to upset what's happening because sexually Bella gains power by being unhinged sexually. By keeping her partner off kilter, sexually, Remy gains power by making her partner happy. So they're going to have to come to a level of intimacy where they let go of their masks and they just allow each other to be with each other. And Bella will have to actually consider Remy and Remy will have to consider herself sexually for them to work compatibly. So what would happen if the first time they slept together, they had masquerade masks on and didn't know who they were? It's got to, um, it's not, I mean. That they don't know who the, each other are, right? That so gives them is, the freedom to like yeah. be themselves. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost like you see the end of where they're going. And that's a great way to start. bring these characters together because they'll have this really electric, powerful encounter because yeah. they're both very strong, passionate people. And they'll have this like really great encounter and then, you know, separate and then have to like come back together 
yeah. and figure out what it was that allowed them to have that electricity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whether figured out consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, because the minute they realize who each other are, it's like, fuck yeah. you and fuck, yeah. fuck everyone. And yeah, that. you just, yeah, yeah this, yeah. this I shouldn't just put have a worked. Bomb, a firework. Yeah, it couldn't <laughs> yeah. have worked. And yeah. there is a, I love that because there's a nice character growth built into that and that they both have to come to terms with the fact that they're playing games. Yeah, and because they had that moment of truth right at the beginning. Yeah, and I think what's important for characters like that is that at the end of the book, it's not that they stop being who they are. It's often with couples like this, when you're writing a couple like this, they agree that they're not going to play games with each other. That's yeah. where this, that's where this, like, that's how you keep them a power couple and mm-hmm. not diminish their power. Because mm-hmm. Remy needs to be Remy and Bella needs to be Bella. The way that they can be together is to agree not to play games with one another. And isn't it funny that this series is called Girl Games? Oh, nice. I didn't even know that. That's yep. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it's because they they all, each of the books, they're playing games with each other until they're not. And so this is like game on game on game in this one because they're in a competition game and they're playing games with each other. Like, so, yeah, Yeah. I I love this. I love this. It's almost like somebody pre-planned this whole thing and rather than taking it out of it. I mean, your magic hat is incredible. You should write this down and put a series together around it. It'd be great. Probably be a bestseller. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it'll be fun. And I think, you know, there's a, what's nice about the characters you're writing is that there's a long life extension to these two. Right. Like, because even after they've come together, you've got the back end of their relationship that you can write books around, which will feel more. um, There's a Netflix series out recently called The Diplomat about a woman who has made an American woman who's made the uh, U.S. representative to the U.K. And her husband is very much a menacing Remy. He's a Remy that's failed. And a Remy that has been demoted and lost power. He's oh. incredibly charming and everyone loves him. And the lead character is very much, she's not, she's more aggressive than playful, like you're describing Remy, but she is aggressive, hard-nosed, and at times feels unhinged. And she's been given all of the power. And so there's an interesting dynamic what makes the series work is seeing these two characters compete with each other for power. Their relationship has turned sour. Oh, I guess what my lunchtime watching is going to (laughs) be. Yeah. So they're trying to hold it together as they're, and you see moments where they really love each other and you can imagine what their relationship was in the past. And they're trying to hold it together, trying to find like who they were in this, in this season where, things have gone bad and they're actually competing with each other. So like on the back end of your falling in love and coming together as a power couple, you can have continued books around these two characters as they, as they feel powerless in different life circumstances and find themselves in these places where they struggle and how they operate with one another in that way too. I love it. I love it. Uh, this has been super helpful for someone who would like to write a book like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. That's it. You know, this book in a lot of ways is my inner rebel, which is what took me two years to write it because I am n- not like 
what I super respect in you, which is uh, your confidence and kind of everybody can fuck off and I'm moving forward. I'm extremely anxious. I have no background in English literature. Like I don't have a degree in English and I don't have a, a, I didn't start writing until I was 35. So this is all like very, I I often feel incredibly out of place in the writing world. I'm often like, I don't belong. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. Like nobody gave me permission to do this. Like this is just something. See, this is what I respect about you. (laughs) Love about you, Sasha, is that like, I'm like, I do need, somebody needs to give me a slip of paper that says it's okay. You have permission. (laughs) Yeah. So, but this has been a, I think the last two years has been an expression for me of like, pushing those boundaries to be like, no, this helps people. This is good. And like, it needs to just like with your story, we just did like, this is these tools, the community is creating are incredibly helpful for writers and helps them get out. And, you know, like, fuck the fact that I don't have permission for things. And I have gotten like a lot of pushback. Like I, my local community, um, I did a, I did a, I was paid to do a talk for about 300 writers that were like across the country online. And I, it was great and it went really well. And I reached out to my, my local author community has a, a monthly let's get together in the library with 15 of us and talk about writing. So I wrote them. I was like, Hey, I would love to just come and do this with you guys for free. I'd love to just like, I want to give back to my local community. Can I do this? They wrote me a letter telling me I wasn't qualified. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. Are you fucking kidding And me? I was like, oh, oh, they're like, you don't have a master's of English. You're not qualified to teach us. And I was like, so like it's not a it's not a this isn't a like imagined pushback like i've actually gotten this multiple times of people looking at me and being like i don't who are you you're not qualified to do this so you publish some indie books that's not and i'm like no 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 the tools speak for themselves you just have to let me share the tools the tools speak for themselves damn it so i think this this whole dialogue doctor experience has been an expression of being a rebel which is why i had had that post-it note on the wall for so long because i needed to like feed off of your confidence and your rebel attitude to actually push through the last two and a half years to get to like yeah it's so funny because that you know oh you want to be taught by like the best writers or whatever but but writers can't always teach teaching is a very different skill set to writing it's just like um you know coaches if you look at um you know, like football coaches or basketball coaches, they haven't all been NBA basketball league players. What they know is physiology and food and diet and anatomy and how to like sports psychology. You don't have to be a fucking writer to be able to teach writing. You have to understand words and dialogue. You have to understand the mechanics and the tools and the structure of what creates good prose or good story or good characters like it drives me insane that people get really caught up on fucking like qualifications that are meaningless it doesn't make you a good fucking teacher yeah well in part of us like i did i was i did channel my inner sasha and walk away from that group being like you know what if you guys don't fucking want me i don't want to be here but it is that like you know and i think there is a a weird like if you were to read one of my books and be like does jeff apply all of these in his books i get so in my way I get so in my way when I'm writing a book 
And like, yeah, I apply. I do my best. But I was just recently taking that failed launch that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And I was like, I'm going to turn it into a screenplay to see if that can help me make it better. I immediately had to delete the first six chapters. (laughs) Because I was like, when I'm imagining this on the theater of my mind, like I coach fucking other writers to do. I'm like, these first six chapters are bullshit. They give us nothing. This is just me ramping into the story. I needed these six chapters to find the character voices, but they're not doing anything on the stage of the imagination. But but here's the interesting thing, because as somebody else who also teaches, it's it's very different being in the I understand how to deconstruct writing and how to convey, take out the tools and convey those to others. That is like one side of my brain. and But I'm not in that mindset when I am then writing. We go into flow state, right? And so we, and also there are only so many tools that you can put into like story before you are trying to create a rote list of have I done this tool? Have I done this? And then you lose all the, the, the heart of the story. Right. So it's, it's, and I've been asked this before. Then people have said to me, Oh, do you apply everything, you know, from your, and you can't, you actually cannot apply it all at all times. And, and, and if you try, you just end up getting something that's like cardboard instead of something that has heart and soul. And, but it's because, and I think this is where that fraction fracture comes is because it's a different part of the brain that you're using to to teach and to deconstruct and to understand how to convey that than it is when you are writing so yeah. like i i wouldn't worry about that like that that the two are not connected yeah well and really. i i realize that like with my writing i'm way more emotionally attached to it than i am with the people i'm coaching mm. so the people i'm coaching i have no problem being like yeah you don't need this this is yeah, yeah, cut yeah, all of this. Yeah. With my writing, I had an editor tell me, started chapter six, and I was like, You don't understand. <laughs> I was like, You don't understand how important <laughs> these first five chapters are. And so it's oh, not wow. like, but wow. I'm so emotionally tied to it. So I think there's um, but yeah, I think there's a uh there I, I completely agree that like it's two different sides of your brain and two different sides yeah. of your yeah. thing. And I think, but I think I hold for other authors out there, like the imposter syndrome of like, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be here. This no, isn't... fuck that. We yeah. all have that. That's just bullshit. You need to tell that to fuck off. Yeah. And I think there is a like inner rebel of like, no, I, I'm going to tell that voice just to shut the fuck up and I'm going to yeah. go ahead and yeah. move forward. Yeah. 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 Find yeah, your yeah. inner Jeff Diva and, and that's what you need to hold on to. Okay, yeah. we are like half an hour over time. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books and everything else you'd like. Yeah, dialoguedoctor.com is where you can find me. There's a weekly newsletter, weekly podcasts that are all free. There's a community that's like five bucks a month you can join in. Amazing. Uh, we do we do buy twice a month Zoom calls where we analyze masterworks and it's a, it's a ton of fun. So you can come jump into that if you want. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Jeff Elkins and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm joined by not one, but two guests. We are going to be talking to Megan Haskell and Greta Boris, and we're talking all about a whole bunch of stuff, including world building and planning and prepping your novel. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review. 